All right, 2 Kings chapter 4. This evening, as we continue our study through 2 Kings together, we've been looking at some of the miraculous works that God has been doing through Elisha the prophet, and we didn't quite get out of chapter 4 last time. We saw probably one of the more uh, incredible miracles uh, that God did through Elisha's ministry. Certainly, I don't want to quantify as one is more important than the other, but last time we saw him actually be used by God to uh, raise uh, this uh, woman's son who had died back from the dead, and God powerfully demonstrated this impossible uh, work of God by bringing back the life of this young boy uh, from the dead through the prayer and intercession of Elisha the prophet. And as we come now to chapter 4 verse 38 we pick up and we get two more miracles that happen in this chapter here. The first one beginning in verse 38 there of chapter 4 says Elisha then returned to Gilgal and there was a famine in the land and the sons of the prophets, now again, remember, this was sort of like a school of ministry, as we've talked about before, these uh, seems individuals gathered in these different locations and received guidance and training for prophetic ministry. It seems all the way back from the days of Samuel, perhaps these schools were established and those who were attendees and participants were often referred to by this title of the sons of the prophets. So these are men of God. These are men who are in ministry, learning, being equipped, utilizing their gifts under the mentorship of those like Elisha and those who were the prominent prophets in that day. So Elisha returns to this area. There's a famine. There's a lack of food. And the sons of the prophets, it says, were sitting before him and recognizing this need, Elijah gives instruction. He says, put on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. In other words, this is what I want you to do to provide a meal for them. So it says, verse 39, one of them went out into the field to gather herbs and he found a wild vine and gathered from it a lapful of wild gourds and he came and he sliced them into the pot of stew though he did not know what they were so unfortunately this particular son of the prophets here didn't go through eagle scout training or anything of that nature because it says he just goes out and gathers some gourds from this wild vine and again there was probably a scarcity of food at this time the point being indicated, we'll see as we go on here, is he just gathers these gourds from this wild vine and he has no idea that they're poisonous or what they are and he just brings them back to be incorporated into this large pot of stew to feed all these other uh, ministry counterparts here. It says he brings them back, slices them into the pot of stew. Again, just kind of foolishness, naivety, not knowing he was poisoning the stew. Verse 40 says, then they served it to the men to eat. And it happened as they were eating the stew that they cried out and said, man of God, there is death in the pot. Now, I would never recommend saying that if your wife cooks stew. Just, just that's probably the word of the Lord for tonight right there. If you're married or uh, just probably not a good thing to say if you're eating dinner at someone else's house. Uh, there have been a few times that I have eaten something where I was tempted to say that, uh, not in my house cooking wise, uh, but certainly there have been a few occasions, certainly when I've traveled overseas and I've been in some particularly uh, areas that were a little more difficult to live and they just kind of put together something for you and it's kind of soupy and lumpy and there's uh, some things in there and you're eating it and you're thinking, Lord, I'll put it down if you keep it down, please just help me and you kind of pray more than ever when you eat something like that so they recognize something's poisonous something's bad right away that's the idea there's death in the pot oh my goodness this is poisonous and they couldn't eat it so now the stew has been ruined what was supposed to be the source of their food in the midst of already a famine has now been ruined because really of just kind of the you know the the poor decision of this one young man or whoever went out just his foolishness he mixed some things in that weren't good so verse 41, Elisha seeks to resolve the problem, no doubt God giving him direction. He says, bring some flour and put it into the pot and then serve it to the people that they may eat. 
and then there was nothing harmful in the pot. Now, I don't know particularly if the flour had that much of a effect, again, medicinally or to neutralize the poison or whatever. It could certainly be a part of that. I think at the end of the day, this was just a miraculous work of the Lord again, that Elisha recommends that they do this. They follow the word of the Lord through the man of God, Elisha. And as a result, what was once ruined and polluted is now basically restored uh, and it's resolved. There's no problem anymore and things are okay and it's able to be partaken of as a meal what they needed. And basically what we see here in verse 38 through 41 is another miracle of the Lord. And this, you could say, is a miracle of, of change or a miracle of transformation. Because basically you have a situation where, again, we learn, you know, human mistakes are made, a situation, the pot is stewed particularly, it becomes polluted, becomes ruined. And now that situation is harmful. It's no good. It's not useful anymore. Kind of the purpose has been damaged and defiled. But the good news is, is that even through human mistakes where we, like this young man with a pot of stew, sometimes we make mistakes in our own foolishness. And we pollute things and we defile things. And now something is ruined that would have been good and useful. And we're thinking, great, now because of what I've done, I've totally polluted the whole pot. And I've ruined everything. And now it's not useful and it's, it's all been damaged and defiled. Well, listen, look at this story here. God can intervene. God can help. God can heal. God can restore. And if God cared about stew... <laughs> I think he cares about the situations in our lives. Uh, God does this for a pot of stew that was polluted and takes away the poisonous effect somehow and resolves purposely this situation for the benefit of those involved. And God can spare and salvage any situation he chooses to. And really, however he chooses it to. I mean, here they throw a little flour in the pot and it says there is the result of that. There was no longer anything harmful in the pot. That is, the situation got resolved. The poison was dissipated somehow and a solution was brought about. And what a great encouragement to realize that we know and we serve a God that has that kind of power. He has that kind of limitless ability and he cares about situations. And, you know, if you got a situation, you think, man, this has been ruined. It's been defiled because of something dumb I've done or something foolish other people have done. It doesn't mean if God doesn't want to, he can at the right way and right time through his you know, design bring about a situation where he can solve that scenario and transform a situation or bring about changes. And, you know, as you look at this story as well, I think on a spiritual level, and again, certainly we want to be open to seeing things on another level that God has for us. It was we're studying the Old Testament in these passages. I think this also becomes a picture here of spiritual hunger. It's interesting. These are the sons of the prophets. It says there's a famine. That is, they're starving. They're longing to eat. And again, interesting in Amos, it talks about that there will be a time when there will be a famine in the land for hearing the word of the Lord. And so in a sense here, you have a picture of sort of spiritual hunger. People need to be satisfied. They need to be fed. And a foolish man kind of poisons with bad ideas, you could say, if you were to think of that symbolically. And he kind of makes what would have been good now harmful. And I think sometimes this can happen on a human level. I think sometimes people just in their own foolishness, they kind of have some bad ideas. They get some wrong theology. They have some wrong concepts and they kind of mingle and mix those things into that which is being fed to God's people. And now you got false doctrine. And sometimes I think false doctrine comes about because people just have genuinely wicked intentions. But I think there are other times where false doctrine and bad teaching comes about just because people are foolish and they're naive. They don't study to show themselves approved. They don't accurately handle the word of God. And so they implement kind of wild ideas that they pick up from here and there and they kind of mix that into the whole pot of stew with God's word. And now you have something that really, rather than being helpful, is harmful. So what do you do in that situation? How do you resolve that? You know, do you, do you go in and you pick out every little piece of poisonous thing that's in there well elijah doesn't say hey go and pick out every little poisonous piece of gourd instead he says mix in the flour and that will neutralize and resolve it so it's no longer harmful and i think in the same way spiritually when you have bad teaching 
Maybe when you have false doctrine, I don't know if always the wisest thing to do is to try and nitpick and pick and pull out and point out and complain about everything that's poisonous. I think we just need to give the good meal, the flower, if you would, of the word of God. And if you just give out the word of God and you mix the word of God into what's toxic and poisonous out there, the wonderful thing is, in a lot of ways, it neutralizes bad theology. And so often I think the best thing we can do to counteract false doctrine is just to insert like the flower in the pot here, just sound doctrine. Just feed people the word of God, feed yourself upon the word of God. You don't have to know everything that's false doctrine and learn all those kind of things. I think sometimes Christians spend more time studying everything that's false because they want to be the person who can point out and complain about what everybody's doing false than they do studying their own Bibles. Just know your Bible. Feed upon your Bible. Feed the Word of God into your life. Let sound teaching be put into your life. And that will, in a sense, minimize the harmful effects of all the poison that we all kind of ingest sometimes and we hear bad teaching and maybe we pick up bad ideas. Look, the wonderful thing is you put the Word of God in like that flower it will kind of neutralize and minimize all the harmful effects of bad ideas. Because you can't avoid bad ideas. You can't turn on the TV, turn on the radio, or just live in the world and not have poison get stuck in your head all the time. It's just the world that we live in. But the best thing we can do is just keep ingesting the Word of God and let that help us in our lives. Verse 42, we then see the second miracle as the chapter concludes. It says, And then a man came from Baal Shalisha, and brought the man of God the bread of first fruits, 20 loaves of barley bread. Now, don't get the idea in your mind here of like a big loaf of bread. These were kind of more be like almost like the size of like a muffin or a little biscuit is the kind of the idea here when it says 20 loaves. That's not a substantial amount. And newly ripened grain in a knapsack. And at this point, Elisha, again, being referred to as the man of God, said, give it to the people that they may eat. In other words, there's a need. What you've supplied, he's saying, distribute that among the people. Now, the person hearing this is astonished because it's a very minimal amount. That's why verse 43, his servant said, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? Shall I set this? The idea is such a minimal amount. So I set this before a hundred men. In other words, there's not enough resources here. There's no way what you're telling me to give and share is going to be sufficient to meet the needs of a hundred people. It's just, it's not enough. There's a lack. There's a deficiency. He says, give it to the people. Notice he said again, give it to the people that they may eat for thus says the Lord. And that makes all the difference. They shall eat and notice have some left over. Again, that kind of sounds like Ephesians 3. God does exceedingly abundantly above and beyond what we ask or think so often. So he says, you, you do what I'm telling you to do in the name of the Lord. You obey God's word. And he says, give as you should to them what belongs to them that God wants them to have. And they shall eat and have some left over. So he set it before them. And again, here's the miracle, the miracle of multiplication the miracle of God multiplying and providing abundantly. He set it before them and they ate and they had some left over again, according to the word of the Lord. So uh, again, sometimes in our lives, like in this story here, God will perhaps lead us to do something or to obey in faith. God may ask something of us that really is more than we're humanly able to do. Maybe we lack the resources to do it. Maybe we lack the resources to do something God asks us to do financially. And we go, Lord, there's just not enough. I know what you're asking me to do, but right, how can I pay for that mission trip, for example? Lord, you're leading me to go on this mission trip. How, how can you, Lord, I only have a hundred extra dollars. How in the world am I going to you know, pay for a $1,500 mission trip to go to the Dominican Republic or Honduras or to Africa? Lord, you're, you're asking me to do something. And he says, listen, I'm telling you to do it. If you do it, not only will I provide, I'll provide enough and I'll even give you a little bit extra so you can buy your mom a trinket on the way back. You'll even have a little five-hour leftover. You can negotiate in the market and get a little necklace and bring it back home. 
And so often the Lord does that. Sometimes the Lord may tell us to help in some way or to give in some other capacity. Sometimes it's the Lord asks us to do something and maybe it's not a material or financial thing that we lack, but maybe he asks us to do something and it's more than we're able to do in the sense that we lack the ability. And we say, Lord, what? You're asking me to do that? I don't have the ability to do that. Lord, I, I, I'm, there's no way. I just don't have the capacity or the ability to do what you're asking me to do. I just, I don't have the time to do it. And the Lord says to us, look, just do what I'm asking you to do. Give it to me and give of what I'm asking you. And if you do what I'm asking you to do and you're willing to give out of your life as God asks of you, the wonderful thing is, is God always comes through. And God is able to multiply what little minimal talent we have by the blessing and the anointing of His Spirit. God is able to multiply our inability with incredible supernatural ability that comes from His Spirit. And then guess what happens? He gets all the glory. Because just like in this situation where they realized, hey, we're going to feed everybody. Everybody sit down and a hundred people are looking at that little amount of food. Then they're going, uh, there's not enough there. But when there was more than enough and some left over, they realized God did something miraculous. And sometimes God asks you to do something or me to do something. And then you obediently give to the Lord of your life, your time, your efforts, your willingness to serve. And God miraculously, abundantly supplies supernatural ability that supersedes your ability. And people go, that had to be God because there's no way that he could do that. That has to be the Lord because I know her. She, she's like the most untalented person I've ever met. How did she just do that? And people realize it's the Lord. And they realize it's a miracle of God. And what a wonderful thing to see that sometimes the Lord will call us to take a step of faith, to give in some capacity of ourselves or what we have, our time, our resources, our talents. But listen, you cannot lose if you give to God what he asks you to give. If God says give, if God says do something, whatever that is, however it plays out in your life, if he says to you, I want you to give to the people, I want you to minister to the people and serve the people, if you just give over to the Lord in an obedient act of willingness, you cannot lose and God will always come through. And, and let me say something too. In this situation, here they're giving out and they end up not only having sufficient but some left over. You know, that always reminds us too that you can never lose out by being giving and generous when it comes to the work of the Lord. Again, however that plays itself out, the Lord always is you know, able to supply and he's always able to provide in our lives. And you know, there should never be a time where we fearfully feel like, well, man, not only can I help 100 people, if I give of that, then what am I going to have for myself? God says, look, you're going to have not only enough to do what I'm asking you to do, you're going to have some left over. Again, we see this same kind of miracle, do we not, happen in the New Testament with Jesus and the disciples. Remember, there's a multitudes in front of Jesus after he's just taught and ministered to the people. It says the hour is late and they're in a remote place. And Jesus says to the disciples when they say, hey, Lord, it's a remote place. The hour is late. You better send them home so they can go eat. And Jesus says to them, remember, you give them something to eat. Lord, what? Us give them. What are, you, what are you thinking about? We, we only have here this. Well, he says, we'll see what you have on hand. They go around. They find basically a little boy whose mom packed him lunch. And they find this little boy with five loaves and two fish. And it was, again, little tiny barley biscuits and two fish. It was basically little, you know, Johnny as he's running out the door. And he said, I'm going to go follow the crowds today, mom. I, Jesus is in town again. And she said, oh, 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 wait, wait, wait. Did you brush your teeth? Yeah, I brushed my teeth. Okay. Did you bring anything for lunch? No. Wait a minute. Wait, wait a minute. Get back in here. And she puts five barley loaves and two fish and she sends it off with him. She had no idea. She just packed lunch for thousands of people that day. And so this nice little mom packs her son's lunch. She sends him off. Now they're looking around for food. Jesus says, you're going to feed everybody. They look around. Does anybody have anything? Jesus says he's going to feed the crowds here. He said to see whatever anybody had and we're going to share it with each other here. Thousands of people. This little boy says, I got a lunch. I got five loaves and two fish my mama packed for me. Here, I'll be glad to give that. And Jesus takes it, right? And when they give what they have and they put it in the hands of the Lord, Jesus breaks and blesses and multiplies just like this miracle here. And not only do they sufficiently feed thousands of people, it says afterwards they gathered up 12 baskets full that were left over. How many disciples were there? 12. And there was a basket for each one of them afterwards after they took care of the people. So, 
Again, just such a great reminder. Proverbs 11, verse 24 and 25. Good verse to write down. Go check it out on your own. Talks about the wisdom of not holding back and being generous with our lives and how God always honors and rewards that. Well, chapter 5 gives to us another unique story of a miracle. This time it's not with an Israelite. It's actually with a pagan man. It says, chapter 5, verse 1, now Naaman, commander, it says, of the army of the king of Syria was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master because by him the Lord, interestingly enough, had given victory to Syria. So interesting, God even intervened to give a particular foreign nation, Syria, victory in their battles, though they weren't even people who were following God, but God coordinates the affairs of the world. So this man, it says, this guy who was an honorable man, a great man, a man who was the commander over the army of Syria, probably like general or second in charge under the king. It says he was also a mighty man of valor, but, and that's a big, big emphasis there, but he was also a leper. So here you have this man with a condition that's incurable humanly. He's got a personal dilemma in his life. There's a situation and a condition, leprosy, that exists in his life, came upon his life, and it's something that he cannot resolve. There is no human cure. There's no medicinal cure. Today we call this Hansen's disease, which is probably a reference to what in that day was being referred to as leprosy or a leper. And to this day still, we have medicine that can arrest and kind of hold off the symptomatic effects of this, but still there is no cure for this type of a condition. So here's this man, and take notice, this guy's got everything going for him. It tells us here that he's second in command to the king of Syria. It says the Bible, again, the Bible's very honest with us. The Holy Spirit's giving us all these adjectives. It wants us to see the stature of this man. It says he's a great man. He's an honorable man, that he's very well respected. Certainly he wasn't a follower of Yahweh God, but he he was just a good, honorable man. He was a very respected soldier. He had high rank. He had position. He had authority. We're going to see in this passage, he had a great amount of wealth as well that was sent along with him at the disposal of the king. He's someone who's greatly valued. He's successful. He's someone, it says, who was a mighty man of valor. Again, this is someone who's very esteemed, someone who's very influential, respected, successful, someone with great authority. And look, he has everything humanly possible in his life that anybody could want, but yet he's also got an issue that he cannot resolve, and that's that he's got leprosy. And again, leprosy, as I said, this incurable disease, it basically was a disease that gradually rotted away the flesh is what in essence it did. Uh, It it caused the flesh to begin to deteriorate and typically then appendages would begin to gradually, you know, fall off of the body or the pain sensation was destroyed. So they would reach into the fire and grab something and literally because they had no pain sensation, they would a lot of times damage their you know, body. They would cause injuries to themselves. They would break a joint or break a finger or break an ankle and they didn't even realize it and then just be dragging it along the ground. They would cause the skin to begin to break down. It would destroy the, you know, the, the nerve endings and so forth. And, and basically it was in essence your body gradually rotting away until death. So again, this horrid condition and in the bible leprosy is often used therefore as a type and a picture of sin this terminal spiritual illness that we all have that's incurable that basically gradually destroys and ruins every one of our lives we all have the same spiritual condition that we are leprous spiritually we have a an incurable disease of sin spiritually and it does the same it destroys all of our lives gradually and it's terminal there's nothing we can do to resolve it so here's this man and what we're going to see is you can have everything in the world right everything in the world but you're still a sinner You can be the person on this planet that has more respect than anybody, more power than anybody, greater position than anybody, more wealth and influence, be more successful than anybody. But at the end of the day, you still have a terminal spiritual disease. You are a sinner. And the Bible says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and then forfeits his own soul? And everybody still has this issue of sin in their life. And I bring this to your attention because as we work through this, I just want to encourage you, 
ponder the realities of salvation because no doubt the Holy Spirit gives us this particular miracle. Again, one of the many miracles done because this miracle particularly is a very beautiful symbolic picture of salvation and how we experience salvation in all of our lives. We'll perhaps identify some of those things, but I encourage you just as you're reading through it, thinking about it yourself, maybe go back and read through it. So many great pictures here of the spiritual experience of salvation and how we experience it in our lives are exemplified in this miracle. So here's this man in this condition. Verse 2 says, And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. And she waited on Naaman's wife. So look at the backstory here. He develops leprosy. In the midst of this whole situation, the backstory, which seems disconnected, but God's always connecting dots. And prior to this time when he contracted leprosy, the Syrians had gone out in their battles, being very successful for a time as God allowed them to be, and they actually brought back a captive, a prisoner, a young girl that was Jewish from the land of Israel. And she was brought back and given as a gift to Naaman's wife to basically be one of her maidservants, to serve her, to attend to her needs. Again, they were wealthy, powerful, influential people. So keep in mind, here is this young gal. She's, again, we don't know what her experiences have been. The Bible don't tell us. But for any young girl to be taken captive from a land and taken from her family and her homeland and her familiarity and taken as a slave and brought to a foreign land as a prisoner of war, that's a pretty horrible traumatic experience. Who knows what this girl was subjected to? Who knows? Did she see her parents die? Did she see her family put to death? Did she, again, but she's a young girl and now she's in a foreign land serving as a slave and a servant girl to a foreign woman, a very wealthy woman, the wife of Naaman, this Syrian who was a general in the army, but look, all the while, the Bible says that God can turn the curse into a blessing and that our God has the ability to work all things together for the good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Her life went through a tragedy, and I don't want to diminish the tragedy, but God has an amazing way, just like he takes poisonous stew and he turns it into a healthy, helpful meal, God has an amazing way to take poisonous, tragic, horrible things that happen to people, like a girl being taken as a slave and brought to a foreign land, and now she becomes a missionary plant for God. Because she's now in the right place at the right time to tell this man about the power of Yahweh God and give him the good news about God so his life can be changed. Again, she didn't choose to go on a mission field. God put her on a mission field and God put her in a place because God just coordinated everything as God always does. And he took a tragedy and he turns it into this very wonderful, triumphant thing. And you know, that's a great thing to be encouraged. Perhaps you've seen God do that in lives, maybe in your life, how God takes something and he turned it around and actually still used it for a positive purpose. And when you see tragedy strike, don't think all hope is lost because God can still find ways in his timetables to make things happen. So she's right where she needs to be because look at verse three. She said to her mistress, if only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. She's thinking about Elisha, this guy who can raise people from the dead, who's performing miracles. The power of God is with him. She said, for he would heal him of his leprosy. He's got an incurable, impossible condition. And now she says, wait, can I just tell you there's actually possibly hope for him because there's a God in Israel where I come from and a man of God, a prophet of God who's in touch with God and being used as an instrument and he could bring healing to my master. He could bring healing to your husband. Now, you don't think this wife was happy to hear that good news? Again, out of the mouth of babes. Did God need to send a prophet? All God needed was a little girl, a little girl, a young girl who was there who just compassionate, caring. And maybe because, listen, Maybe because she had been through so much pain and tragedy, that's why she was so compassionate when she saw now her master and her master's wife going through a tragedy. He's got, let's say, like terminal cancer and he's only got a few weeks left to live and she's been through so much pain. Instead of being bitter, she's moved with compassion and she's thinking, I don't want to see them go through the same kind of pain that I did. Let me, let me tell them something that could bring hope. And so she now tells them about this 
power that's available of the God of Israel, she passes word along. It's almost as if she becomes God's evangelist. You see how simple evangelism, just this little girl. And that's all God needs, even to do his evangelism. Just someone who's willing to share some news. This little girl becomes an evangelist. Naaman went in, told his master saying, thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. He tells the king. So the king of Syria said, go now. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him 10 talents of silver. That's about 150 pounds of silver. 6,000 shekels of gold. That's about 750 pounds of gold. And 10 changes of clothing. Now look, in that day, if you had one change of clothing, you were doing pretty well. This is just a gift to bring along to kind of persuade the people of Israel to bring about some kind of a healing by their God for his most important general. That's a great man that he doesn't want to lose. So the king of Israel says, listen, if you can get healed, I don't want to lose you. He probably cared about him as well. You are an important, successful man of valor. Go to Israel. And he loads them down with Almost, notice, 900 pounds of precious metals, 10 changes of clothing. That's about the, the, the estimate there, modern terms, of about a million plus dollars worth of value. This guy was pretty important that the king was willing to send him with those resources. So verse 6, he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised when this letter comes to you that I have sent. Name in my servant to you that you may heal him of his leprosy. So again, these are pagan people. The king of Syria just says, look, here's all the money that you would need. Take care of this guy. Bring about a healing. I heard people in your land can heal people. Send my guy back to me healed. Again, even though they were enemies, he was willing to humble himself because this was a great need for his important general. And it happened, verse 7, when the king of Israel, that was Joram at this time, who was not a very godly man, he reads this letter from the king of Syria. He tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see now how he seeks a quarrel with me. So, Take notice, he's kind of flabbergasted that this man is sent. What he does recognize is he says, look, I'm not God to heal or make somebody alive, to heal somebody of leprosy. What he does realize is what? Only God can help somebody in that kind of condition. He does understand that. And he says, I'm not God. What are you trying to pick a fight with me? Are you trying to provoke me or insult me, he says, by sending your general to me with all this money and entourage, no doubt there are to be tons of servants to transport almost a thousand pounds of precious metals. And he says, I can't help him. But verse eight tells us somehow word of these events got to Elisha the prophet. So it was when Elijah, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent message to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Please, he says, let him come to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Send him to me, he says, so he might know that God is real and the power of God can help him. So verse 9, Naaman went with his horses and chariot and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. So again, here he comes with all this entourage. I mean, this is again, keep me almost picturing your mind kind of like how when the, you know, the vice president or the secretary of state, I mean, just in all the secret service and all the lights and you know, this big entourage comes rolling up to humble Elisha, the prophet's house. And they're thinking, man, this he's, I mean, he's going to be so impressed. This incredibly powerful and, you know, influential man comes, this great general. And verse 10, Elisha sent, it says, a messenger to him saying, go wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored to you and you shall be clean. So Elisha doesn't even come out to meet him. He doesn't come out to pay him this great respect. Whoa, who's here? Naaman, the Syrian, the general of the Syrian. This, most other people would be so you know, impressed with him. And I mean, like having this famous person come to your house. Elisha just, I don't know, he just keeps washing the dishes inside. And he tells a servant, listen, go out and bring him the word of the Lord. He just needs the gospel. You know I mean? just, just 
It's a simple message. Just go out, give him a word, tell him this is what God said and he can be miraculously healed. Now, again, the healing was not going to come because there was something miraculously powerful about dipping in the Jordan River. The healing was going to come from God. The point here was, was he willing to act in faith upon the word of the Lord and to believe the promise of God for his healing? It was a simple message given to this man. If you go and do this, if you go and wash, he says, your flesh shall be restored and you shall be made clean. If you obey the word of the Lord in faith, trusting it as a promise of God, miraculously, you'll be healed, you'll be cleansed of your problem, your condition will be miraculously changed and transformed, much like the gospel, just so very simple. Sometimes it drives people crazy. You mean to tell me that, wait a minute, you mean to tell me that after all these years, I've written so many checks to pay for the stained glass windows, we put seven rows of pews in, in the three generations of our family. We, we've done this and that, and we financed and all. The, and you're trying to tell me that all you did was repent of your sin and sincerely tell Jesus you were sorry for being a sinner and believe that he's the Savior and you just asked Jesus to forgive you and now you're going to heaven? What? Right, it's almost like it's difficult because it's so simplistic and it's hard to almost swallow. So this very simplistic message comes and look what happens. Verse 11, Naaman became furious and he went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord as God and wave his hand over the place. Come on, you got to wave your hand, get you know, a little more charismatic than that. This is a healing you got to wave your hand and give me a little more emotionalism, he says. And heal the leprosy. Are not the Arbana and the Farpar and the rivers of Damascus better than the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and he went away in rage. So here's this guy. Notice, first of all, he is furious because why? Because he wasn't respected. He wasn't honored. And he wasn't, you know, kind of esteemed as this very important person. He was treated, listen, like every other human being. He was treated on level ground. And Elisha nor God were impressed that he was very successful and wealthy and influential and powerful. Listen, nothing wrong with that. But there's also nothing that makes that make a person more important than any other human being or have any more value. And he's infuriated. He says, I thought that he would certainly come out and he would greet me and call upon the name of the Lord and, and wave his hand over me and, and bring about the healing in this you know, very kind of powerful, dramatic way. And notice part of what his problem is, is the healing's not coming, the power of God's not coming the way he wanted it to come. He had his idea how he wanted God to work and his pride is offended because God's not doing it the way he wanted it done. And so he's angry about it. And a lot of times, isn't that how people get very offended and angry at God? Whether it's hearing the gospel and salvation, they're offended when they hear the simple, narrow way of by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And it offends people. It offends their pride that they have to humble themselves before the Lord and admit that being religious isn't good enough or their church isn't good enough or their you know, upbringing isn't good enough and they're good, but that only Jesus can, and it offends people. And they think that things are supposed to go one way. When God changes the way that they think, it causes them to be upset. Notice, he's so insulted, he says, he wants me to dip in the Jordan. He says, there are better rivers in my land. If that's all I was going to do was dip in a river, he says, I could have dipped in way more clean and you know, impressive rivers where I come from. So he goes away now angry and enraged. But listen, here's what's going on at the end of the day. The problem is, is what God knows, and he's directing Elisha on us, and what Elisha knows is, before this man can be helped, he first needs to be humbled. That's the whole problem. The whole problem is he needs to humble himself first and be humbled, then he can be healed and helped. As long as he was going to be demanding and still want to be in control, and God, you're going to do it, and you're going to do it on my terms and my way, because don't you know who I am? I get my way. 
And it's always, this is the way, and, and God's got to humble him first to where he comes to a place of complete brokenness and he's just thankful for any way that God would work and he lets God be God. Then things will come to pass as God wants them to. So notice what happens. Verse 13, thankful he had some good friends, some good servants with him. His servants came near as he goes off in a rage and a huff and spoke to him and said, respectfully, but honestly, my father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? And he says, how much more then when he says to you, just wash and be clean? In other words, they recognize what's going on, that his pride's offended. So they say, master, listen, if he told you to walk on your knees through a hundred yards of broken glass, you would have said, I can do that. I'm naming the Syrian. I fought harder. Back. And, and he would take on the challenge because then he could get to the other side with bloody knees and say, look what I did. I, I, I conquered. If he told you to go all the way back to your land, travel 2,000 miles and slay the dragon and bring back the golden apple, you would have done it, wouldn't you? Of course I would have. And he said, well, then look, just because he's asking you to do something simple, what do you have to lose? Granted, you can't take the credit and the glory but hello, that's the whole point God's trying to get him to. He wants to do something. He wants to earn it. He wants to feel a sense of, like we all do, I did something. I get some credit in the process, right? That's what people want in salvation. I got some credit for what I did. I can't just not do nothing. I got to do something. I, I made myself a little better. I did a few good works. And again, so they say, what do you have to lose? How much more? He just said, wash and be clean. So... Apparently, this is the breakthrough. The light shines into his heart. He becomes humble. And verse 14, so he went down, dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the promise of the word of the Lord. And it says, according to the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. So I, finally, he humbles himself. I can't help but to wonder again, the struggle with human nature, he walks down to the Jordan and he's still, you know, and he's a guy on top of it. I can't help but to wonder if he walks down to the Jordan River knowing he's got to dip seven times and if he got down to the Jordan River and he kind of looked around and is driving him nuts and he kind of just does a, you know, and just, all right, that's three, four, you know what I mean? And just, and, and just struggling, you know, just the last ounce of his human pride and embarrassed, I mean, all these people are looking at me seven times. I got seven times. I got to keep doing this. And the seventh time he goes down and miraculously, the promise of God and the power of God converge together as he exercises his faith and responds to what the Lord asked of him. And miraculously, he's healed. He's transformed again, just like calling upon the name of the Lord in simple, obedient faith and a person saved. And their sins are forgiven. And the Spirit comes into them and they're made brand new. Well, verse 15, he returned to the man of God and to all his aides and he came and stood before him. And he said, indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. So he's overwhelmed with gratitude now. He's a new believer. He's just, you know thrilled he's excited god's just done a powerful work in his life personally it's undeniable so he now wants to do something to show his appreciation again just simple gratitude he says please take take a gift what can i do to honor you i brought all this of wealth from our nation with us but elisha said to him as the lord lives before whom i stand i will receive nothing and he urged him to take it but he refused again elisha certainly just wants him to realize because he knows this man's situation this has nothing to do with anything you contributed you can't contribute to this you can't off and i think elisha just wants him to realize look don't give glory to me and don't think that somehow because of what you did in any way this was all a gift of grace and that's what salvation is it is a total gift of grace just a free gift of God. So Naaman said, then if not, if I can't give anything to you, look what he says, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth. He wants to take back two mule loads of dirt from Israel. For your servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods, but now he wants to worship the Lord. Now what this is here basically is just a naive new convert who's spiritually superstitious. In that day, they believed that gods were connected to geography. 
So he says, I got to go back to my homeland. I don't want to worship other gods. I want to worship Yahweh God, Jehovah God, and he's the God of Israel. So I want to take two mule loads of dirt so I can go back and spread some Israeli dirt outside my house so I can worship the Lord there. And again, just this is just naive, you know, young convert. He's still figuring things out. Verse 18 he says, yet in this thing, may the Lord pardon your servant also when my master goes into the temple of Rimen to worship and he leans on my hand and I bow down in the temple of Rimen. When I bow down in the temple of Rimen, he says, please pardon your servant in this thing. And then Elisha says to him, go in peace. So he departed a short distance. Now take notice. I mean, he has some peculiar ideas he says, look, I want to bring some dirt back so I can keep worshiping the Lord. He says, and when I have to go into the temple, it's my job. And so when I go in the temple of Rimen and my boss makes me go in there, he says, you know, may the Lord be merciful to me because I don't want the Lord to think that I'm, you know, showing devotion to that God because he's my God now because of what he did for me. And notice how very graciously Elisha just says to him, go in peace. And he lets this brand new convert go back to a foreign land and he trusts that God, by the work of his spirit, will help him work through and reconcile and learn and grow all the things he needs to learn and grow through as a brand new convert. Does he have some wrong ideas initially? Yeah, but he's brand new. He's a babe spiritually. But Elisha doesn't say, now, wait a minute, let me correct your theology. Dirt, what are you, foolish? It's not about the dirt of the land. He doesn't do any of that. He just lets him enjoy his conversion. He lets him just be excited about God and he knows that God by his spirit, will help him gradually, step by step, work through his theology, grow and mature. And I'll tell you something. I think sometimes we really need to be careful about how quickly we try and overload people by correcting every little thing we're concerned about in their life and start playing the Holy Spirit in people's lives. And we need to sometimes just let God work. And just let God grow people and mature people. Look, when I got saved, when you got saved, here's kind of the way I see it. When I got saved, the Lord saved me and he blew my mind and I was excited about the Lord. But together with that, he also probably had a list of probably about 119 things that then needed to change in my life. But he didn't save me and change all 119 things right away. He knew all 119 things were not Christ-like, they're not very spiritually mature, but he kind of in his own way prioritized, okay, okay, number seven, we've got to work on number seven in Tony's life first. And so, so, you know, he begins to work through that area in your life and he helps you overcome and see where maybe you're right or wrong and he helps you through your understanding of the word of God. And then one by one, he kind of just starts working through those things in all of our lives. And I think we need to be sensitive to that because sometimes we can be so overzealous in some ways, I think, when somebody perhaps comes to the Lord, it's a brand new conversion, that all of a sudden we start thinking we, now that they're saved, we need to make them Christ-like. We need to make them change. We need to, Look, the Bible tells us in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that as we are beholding the Lord, looking at to the Lord like we look to a mirror, it says that we are being transformed from glory to glory as by the Spirit of the Lord. That is, as any person who is a Christian just begins to worship Jesus and walk with Jesus and worship Jesus and walk with Jesus, that it's a process, little by little, the Spirit of God reveals things to us, He teaches things to us, He helps us to grow, He identifies areas. Listen, I, I'm going to give you a, a humble, awkward illustration of how this happened in my life. When I first got saved, I got saved right after I graduated high school radically converted, didn't grow up in church or anything. So I was like a blank slate. I had, didn't have to be deprogrammed of any old religious ideas. In some ways, I'm thankful for that. Um, I, I just was pagan. So it was very simple for me. Just was pagan. But I was really excited about the Lord, was so happy to be a Christian. And my first year out of high school, I went away to a college. I only stood there for a year, but I went away as a brand new Christian. So I went there right away. And man, I wanted to tell everybody about Jesus. I hung up all these posters in my room. My roommate was probably freaked out because I didn't have a, not a, not a Christian roommate. Hung up all these posters, you know, making him probably feel horrible every night when he went to bed. And everywhere I went, I was trying to talk to people about the Lord. 
That's you go there in August. Around October, the school had this big Halloween gathering thing where people are dressing up and they're celebrating Halloween. So I thought to myself, this is a really great opportunity to rub shoulders with a bunch of people and share the Lord with all kinds of people and, and something. This is a, this, and I'm a fresh, this is a perfect opportunity. I'll go. And, and I just wanted to go and share the gospel. So I told my roommate, look, I got a great idea and it'll get a lot of attention. Let's dress up. You be a cowboy. I'll dress up as a cowgirl. And I, and I dressed up. I kid you not. I dressed up in full female garb. Everything. Even put in all the body parts. Went to that thing, and well, I was getting a lot of attention. Really awkward. I mean, I looked, I mean, I had the makeup on, everything, and I'm trying to share the Lord with people. Listen, I need to tell you about Jesus, and I'm trying to dress like a woman, as a man. I'm trying to share the gospel with people and looking for opportunity. And, and the whole night, here I am doing this, and, and I had become a part of a Christian group. Not one of them ever said to me, Tony, I don't think that would be a very good idea. I mean, look, like theologically, just, you know, the gender thing, you know, the Halloween thing, maybe it's a little question. None of that was mentioned. They just graciously let me be who I was. And you know what part of that was? And I, I realized this in hindsight, talking to, to individuals who were part of that group afterwards, is one of the things that I brought to that group was I actually was caring about sharing my faith with people. And nobody else in the group really seemed to care about that much anymore. And so in one sense, I remember talking to a guy that was older than me and he kind of became like a spiritual mentor. He said, you know what? Uh, even though we probably should talk about kind of what you did and it's not... And afterwards, I was like mortified. I was like, I didn't know, man. I'm a brand new Christian. Oh, I, I was just so naive. I had no clue. Maybe it wasn't the greatest witness. But he said, what I couldn't argue with is that you wanted to share the gospel with people. And, and I say that to say this. I think sometimes, look, when people love the Lord and they're zealous... Let's not try and get pharisaical and try and fix everybody up and lay all these rules and requirements and crazy things upon people that aren't going to help them. Let's just let God work in people's lives. Let's trust that the Lord can do that and let them be happy about what God's doing in their life. Yes, we want to mentor and train. I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that. They did in hindsight afterwards. But we need to extend grace to people. And here I see Elisha just saying, hey, go in peace. God's going to work in your life. And he lets this excited new convert go back home. And he then becomes this wonderful missionary, no doubt, certainly, as he went back to Syria. Now, that's probably a story maybe we should delete off of the message, but stand anyway. Let's just pray. We probably really should, especially after I shared that story with you, in case that was my flesh and not the spirit.